This is CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Batchelor. Hotel Mars, episode N. David Livingston, Dr. Space himself, is here as my colleague and co-host and friend. And we're off on an adventure thanks to a new book that I'm very much looking forward to reading and discussing with the author. Off Earth, Ethical Questions and Quandaries for Living in Outer Space. Erica Nesvold is the author, MIT Press. Erica, congratulations and good evening. And before we go exploring on the moon and Mars, what is your ambition in your new book? What vision did you have when you sat down to write? Thank you very much. Good evening to you, Erica, and congratulations. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Um, well, I, I have to admit, when I wrote this book, my, my initial and primary motivation was just to learn more about the subject myself. I was inspired to think about the ethics and human rights challenges of space settlement because I was interested in space settlement. I'm an astronomer myself. I love space, but I recognized I didn't have the kind of training and, and expertise to answer all these big questions. And so in uh, researching for the book, I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of those experts. Uh, and so that was my primary motivation. And then the more I learned and the more of these fascinating conversations I had, the more excited I was to share all of this with the rest of you. I, an historian I met once upon a time said exactly what you did, much, but not as poetically. He said, you want to learn something? Write a book about it. And that's absolutely what happened. David, you have a question for Erica. Uh, yeah, Erica, you, you're interested, I know, in the in ethical issues and ethical questions about going, as your book says, off Earth. Uh, I'm curious as to uh, how you would grade, if grade is the correct word, our efforts to return and, and go to the moon through Artemis. Um, well, I don't think you can get a grade until you complete an assignment, so uh, I think we'll have to wait and see. Um, I'm, of course, very excited to see humans on the moon again in my lifetime. I missed the last time around. Um, and I'm also excited as a scientist to see um, all of the new science that we'll learn while we're there and in the process of developing the technology that we need to go back. Um, so, yeah, still remains to be seen, I think. We have a contest underway, Erica. You missed it the first time you mentioned modestly, but you're going to get to see it a long, much longer than I see it, which is a contest between the People's Republic of China and everybody else. The moon is just one of the targets, so is the asteroid belt, so is Mars, and Earth orbit, all of that in front of us. And that's why the Artemis Accords have become extremely important to cite routinely. Right now, my understanding is that a number of nations have signed up and mean to work together, especially to develop peacefully the surface of the moon. So let's begin there. There's a contest. Having not read your book, I'm, I'm a limited in my ability to ask these questions, but I'll do the best I can. There's a contest for the South Pole of the moon. And claiming it is said to be the beachfront property because of the likelihood or the possibility that that would set up an ability to make, water, to make water out of the surface of the moon and also stay in communication with the Earth. All very good things. There are shadowy craters there. Uh, this contest for the South Pole, are there recommendations you make in ethical conduct of nations or contests of nations, alliances? What are your recommendations knowing that we have a moon race underway? Well, uh, one of the things I do in the book is explore the legal framework that's already in place. 
um, for things like uh, claiming territory in space. And the, the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 says that nations can't just uh, go up there and claim, for example, the, the South Pole of the Moon as being American territory or Chinese territory. One of the reasons that that treaty came about is because the Soviet Union and the U.S. wanted to avoid that kind of land grab race that we saw on Earth in history. Um, and so I think that that's a, a great idealistic starting point, the idea that we don't want to repeat these same mistakes in space that we have in the past. Uh, maybe this time we share the, the resources uh, in, in particular areas of space. And besides sharing between nations, if that's who's, who's arguing or squabbling over a, a piece of land or a resource, we also need to share between all the different interests. There's going to be scientists who are interested in studying untouched parts of the moon. There's going to be the private companies who want to mine this water ice so that they can use it for fuel or, or sell it to people. And, uh, and there's going to be the nations that want to uh, establish uh, control as much as I can without being able to claim territory. And uh, there's certainly a lot of ethical considerations in how we balance all of those needs, uh, not just amongst all of us living today, but also with the future. If we mine all of that water ice off the South Pole of the Moon, what's going to happen in a few generations when they need it? Wonderful. David? Um, there, You know, Erica, there are quite a, quite a few people that don't want us to uh, return to the Moon, and astronomy is one of the reasons that they uh, put forth and they think lunar development will adversely forever and ever impact astronomy. And you as an astronomer, I'm curious as to your perspective on astronomy and lunar development. And is there ethical lunar development that takes into consideration astronomy? Yeah, I actually think this is kind of uh, fascinating if you step back and think about it, because astronomy is one of the few scientific fields who hasn't had to, to deal with uh, fighting over uh, land use with, with other interests. Um, everybody who studies things on Earth, whether they're studying the Great Barrier Reef or rainforests or, or snail darters, they have to uh, work really hard to be able to study their environments of interest versus all of the other people who want to use that environment. Astronomers have had the benefit of... of studying things that nobody could touch up until recently. And now we're going to have to start figuring out how to negotiate these land use issues. Um, is there an ethical way to develop the moon? Some would argue that the most ethical thing would be to not develop it at all. I think we're going to end up having to negotiate somewhere in the space between. And I think the scientists, the planetary scientists and astronomers will keep trying to be a very loud voice towards uh, preventing us from from contaminating the moon or the night sky or Mars so much that we lose that precious scientific knowledge. Part of the Artemis Accords worries about resources and the extraction of resources. This will be a problem that is revisited with the asteroids, the asteroid belt, and perhaps also with Mars. In your researches, talking to people who are thinking about this, or already have, we have the Outer Space Treaty. Is there an agreement about how to go forward with Everybody owning it, but certain people having the resource, uh, the ability to extract it. And what happens to the profits then? I would not say that there's universal agreement, but of course, when is there ever a universal agreement? And part of the problem is that the Outer Space Treaty, which was written during the Cold War, was much more focused on uh, national use of space, nation's use of space, of course. During the Cold War, that was the main concern. And then more recently, we've had all these commercial space interests grow and, uh, and arrive on the scene. And the Outer Space Treaty is less specific about whether private companies can uh, 
extract and then own resources in space. Now, the U.S. is certainly supporting that view. They passed the, uh, the Space Act of 2015 that essentially says that space is sort of like international waters. You can't own the ocean, but you can own the fish that you pull out of the ocean. You can't own space or claim territory in space, but if you extract resources, you can own and thus sell those resources. So the U.S. certainly seems to be trying to to support that concept, that model. Um, other countries like Russia have been critical of that, and so I think there's going to continue to be some debate on that until eventually it is, uh, tested in, in the courts. It sounds like the same argument that we're having at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean right now. Russia has planted a flag down there, but nobody's acknowledging that's possible. There is such a thing as the Arctic Council. It's not met recently. So it, it's not quite a free-for-all. It's a harsh conversation. Is that conversation going on, Erica, to your understanding? Oh, certainly. The uh, the space lawyers are working very hard right now. And, and one thing everyone's aware of is that the private space industry is growing extremely rapidly. And the concern is that it's growing faster than regulation can keep up. On the other hand, when it comes to something like property rights, which are really, um, I don't know if the lawyers would put it this way, but they're really all in our heads, right? Property rights are agreements between humans about about property and uh, and we won't find out how we settle those agreements until people get up there and start having uh, conflicts over the resources that they're extracting and until then it's just a, a lively debate david you have a question um yes yeah, so um i i'm curious how you would see the space force and the role of the united states space force in policing some of the things you've been talking about or lunar development or um, property rights. Do you see a role for that? And, and, and how, how do you see it fitting in? Um, my understanding of the Space Force is not, is that, is not that their, their role includes going out and patrolling to defend property rights on the moon. We'll see whether it expands over time. At the moment, they seem to be focused on, uh, on the U.S. and U.S. territory here on Earth and on, uh, on handling things like, uh, America's space technology in orbit around, around Earth. Um, I am not particularly excited at the idea of military forces going out into space to enforce anything. And in fact, that's also covered by the Outer Space Treaty, which, again, written during the Cold War, uh, forbids things like uh, building military bases or um, uh, putting weapons of mass destruction in space. We're going to Mars. Erica Nesvold is the author of a new book, Offer Earth Ethical Questions and Quandaries for Living in Outer Space. The moon is a limited environment for colonization. Not so Mars so far. David Livingston, Dr. Space of The Space Show... This is Hotel Mars. I'm John Batch. This is Hotel Mars. I'm John Batch with David Livingston, Dr. Space of the Space Show. And we're speaking with an author of a new book, Off-Earth Ethical Questions and Quandaries for Living in Outer Space. Erica Nesfold is the author. She is also an astronomer. But she has written a book looking at ethics in colonization. There wasn't much when the Americas were colonized. In fact, I can't find any in the 500 years of the exploitation of both the people and the environment that was here before the Europeans came. However, one of the details I learned from an excellent review of Erica's book in Nature magazine, the premier peer-reviewed magazine on planet Earth, probably in the solar system soon enough, 
is that Erica's involved herself into avoid in, involved her book into avoiding the mistakes of colonization. Erica, that's a wonderful ambition. How do we do it? Do we get everybody together and say we're not going to be uh, we're not going to be uh, uh, conquistadors and wipe out everybody? Well, I, I think one key is to make sure that everyone involved in space exploration or in planning for space exploration has actually studied the history of colonization on Earth, uh, particularly before they want to start using narratives of colonization for talking about space. Most of us in the U.S. here have uh, have learned some some part of it in our, our school history classes, but it really is important to look, uh, take a, an objective view an unfiltered view of, uh, of the history of colonization across the world, including in North America, and see what harms it caused and what were the what's, what are the aspects of this colonial mindset that led to these harms. A lot of people argue that, well, if there's no indigenous people in space, then colonization is not a problem because colonization was, of course, the worst for the colonized peoples. But uh, there's a lot of other parts of colonization that can cause harm. Colonization causes a lot of harm to the environment. Uh, it causes a lot of harm to other people involved in the process in North America that included enslaved people and women and, and workers. And so just analyzing our mindset and thinking about why we want to go to space, what we think we're, we're owed from space and what we have a right to and what we don't. These are all very important questions. Yes, you make a critical distinction between settling and colonizing. How so, Erica? Yeah, this can feel sometimes like it's just quibbling over language, uh, and I tend to prefer the word settlement. I Myself, I, I use the word space settlement instead of space colonization. That's really just as a reminder to myself every time I say the phrase, to think about the history of colonization and the ways that it caused harm and what we want to avoid repeating in our space. Now, there's problems with the word settlement, too. It's not an apolitical word here on Earth today. Um, and you can use the word settlement all you want and still conduct activities that are really colonization. So it's not just about language, but for me, it's an important reminder in a way to show that I've thought about these issues. David, you have a question. Does the, since we're talking about Mars, does the toxicity of the Martian environment compel people going there for settlement to be more cooperative, more interdependent, maybe even more considerate of, uh, of an environment that is so hostile to humans. Can the environment make up some of the shortfalls that you're talking about? I think this is a really fascinating question, and I think we won't find out until we get out there and the sociologists can start studying the, the space settlers. I think there's certainly a possibility that because humans living in space together will be, um, it'll be so important for their survival to work together and to have uh, a more communal effort. Um, it's possible that culture in space will evolve uh, in, a, in a more community-oriented direction, and that they'll They'll have better teamwork, for example, and, uh, and less conflict. On the other hand, it's also possible that the way that we build our, our habitats in space will lead to more oppression, for example, if the life support system is really centralized and controlled by, by a small number of people. You can imagine how that could lead to a lot of oppression and social control. So um, I don't think we can just count on the fact that the environment will make us better people, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how our cultures and values change. What are the philosophers' opinions of the first human being born on Mars? Is that a Martian? 
Well, that's an interesting question. I, uh, I, I, you have to ask the philosophers that. I don't consider myself an, a philosopher. I consider myself an astronomer who dabbles in philosophy. Um, I think that uh, we can get into arguments long into the future as people live and evolve in space. We can start having arguments about uh, evolution and and whether there's a difference between. Uh, Martian humans and, and terrestrial humans. Um, but for me, as someone who's more interested in the, the ethics of the problem, um, I think the important thing is for us to always remember that it doesn't matter where you were born or what you look like, you're still a person. So the personhood of everyone involved in this process is the, uh, the priority for me. I was attracted to your response to Alexander Witz Witzy of The Nature magazine about reproductive rights in space. I think that's a rich topic, and we're going to get there, Erica. Okay. It really, it really is. It's uh, it's farther in the future than a lot of the other topics I talk about, but uh, it's it's really fascinating because we don't know whether we can have children, healthy children in space, and we also don't really know how to even figure that out in an ethical way because when it happens, eventually it'll be experimentation on a on a pregnant person and a fetus, and that's generally frowned upon by bioethicists. David, you have a question. We have a couple of minutes. Um, the um the issue of having the children in space is a is a big ethical issue. Uh, children cannot consent if you're looking for informed consent. Um, right now, the, the Outer Space Treaty says the launching government controls everything that everyone does under that launch agreement, meaning the U.S. government would be responsible for uh, everything that happens that an American launching company did to get on Mars. Does that mean that the U.S. government has ethical decision-making on an American launch that went to Mars and people decided to have children? Can the U.S. government uh, take steps to re require no pregnancies? Can the U.S. government uh, make you sign waivers so they're not financially responsible for what you do? This is an important clause in the OST making the governments responsible, does that include our personal behavior when we start settlement? Well, that's, uh, that's an excellent question for a space lawyer, I would say. I'm, I, I wouldn't be able to speculate myself on how the laws would turn out. Um, certainly the Outer Space Treaty says that uh, activities by by non-government entities in space require the um, the authorization and continuing supervision of their, their launching space government. And so uh, when we start talking about people having personal lives in space, there's still a lot of questions, uh, which I've heard space lawyers debate about how much continuing supervision you actually need. What does that really mean when people are just living their lives in between work shifts on Mars? Um, and so, uh, so we'll find out. I think, um, I think we're still a ways away from that. I think everyone is concerned about the risks involved with attempting to, uh, to have children in space, but it'll probably catch up to us faster than we expect. Erica Nesbold, the author of Off Earth, Ethical Questions and Quandaries for Living in Outer Space, MIT Press 2023. David Livingston, Dr. Space of the Space Show, this is Hotel Mars, Episode N. I'm John Batch.